0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 14th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. It might be appropriate to think of Frederick Douglass as the last founding father. As a fighter for emancipation, legal equality for women, and the principles that animated the birth of the United States, Frederick Douglass is rightfully a celebrated American. Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, is the new book by Tim Sandifer, published by the Cato Institute. We spoke last week. Where is the Frederick Douglass movie?
1: Yeah, seriously. It's really shocking that there has never been not only no Frederick Douglass movie, but there's never been a Frederick Douglass television show or anything. To my knowledge, Douglass has been portrayed on film exactly two times, not counting educational films. And that is once in a one or two line cameo in the film Glory and once uh, just recently in a show called Underground, where he was portrayed by the musician John Legend in a few scenes. I mean, you think about uh, the impact that he had,
0: and it's not just in the United States. He's uh, very highly regarded in
1: Ireland. Yes, he's a European figure. He spent uh, quite some time in Great Britain and in Ireland, and he uh, spoke in defense of the rights of the Irish and was very highly regarded in his lifetime and since then. there, No, it's really shocking that that a figure with such a wonderful personal story of adventure and heroism has been left out of American cinema. I I, I hope someday that's fixed, but I know of no serious plans to do that.
0: All right. So let's talk about who this guy was. And
1: where was he born? Douglas was born on a plantation in Maryland, on the eastern shore of Maryland, in February of 1818. He didn't know his exact birth date. He never did find out his exact birth date. But uh, he grew up thinking that he was born in 1817. It was not until he was in his 70s he discovered that he had actually been born in 1818. The plantation where he was born still stands, actually, and it's still a private residence. And still in the family, I believe, that uh, owned it at his own time.
0: All right. So uh, his mother, as I understand it, would uh, regularly travel from uh, where she lived, which was uh, a different plantation, to go visit her son who lived somewhere else. And it was – quite a trek.
1: That's right. He had very vague memories of his mother. He he never knew who his father was, and he never saw his mother after the age of seven. And his memories of her were always sort of hazy. But he remembered that she would come uh, a very long distance to come and visit him. He was raised by his grandmother, uh, Betsy Bailey. And so his mother, Harriet Bailey, would come and visit him typically at night, probably after she was done with her daily chores. And he chose February 14th to arbitrarily as his birthday because he sort of vaguely remembered that the last time he saw her when he was seven, he thought he remembered that she gave him a ginger cake that was heart shaped. And he sort of remembered her calling him her Valentine. And he thought, well, maybe she would probably have visited him with a special treat on his birthday. So perhaps he had been born on Valentine's Day. And that's why he chose Valentine's Day to be his birthday. And um, growing up, you know, we talk about people who are—and
0: the subtitle of your book is Self-Made Man, and it's such a great subtitle for uh, Frederick Douglass because we're used to people uh, coming from uh, stories about people who've come from nothing to uh, achieve these great things and and be so well-regarded historically, but— The you know one of the big differences for Frederick Douglass is that he began not even owning himself.
1: Yeah, that's very true, and and he started from less than than people like Ben Franklin or Abraham Lincoln, who were other examples of the American self-made man. Figure, you know, the, and and the title comes from the the title of a speech that Douglas gave repeatedly throughout his life. One of his most popular lecture during his days as a traveling lecturer was "Self Made Men," and he gave examples in that speech of the American figure of the self made man, including Lincoln. But none of them can really match up to to Douglas himself, who, as he said, had to he had to steal his own education, he had to steal literacy, and then steal his own self. One of my favorite lines of Douglas's was. a during at the beginning of a speech that he gave once when he said I stand before you today as a thief and robber I stole this head these arms these legs from my master and ran off with them
0: Yeah well I mean when you say stole literacy that's that's almost literally true
1: Yes, he had to he, he came up with a very clever way of learning to read. He when he was sent as a young boy to Baltimore to live with the family Hugh and Sophia Ald who were kind of uh, distant relatives of his master, he Learn, he saw his, um, he saw Sophia, the, the wife of the house, reading the book of Job and he was curious about it and he asked her to teach him to read and being a good young Christian wife, she said okay and she started to teach him to read and then of course she made the mistake of bragging to her husband about how, he, how quickly Frederick was learning and Hugh flew into a rage and prohibited her from teaching him to read because he said it would unfit him as a slave, which of course was true. Douglas regarded this he said as the first decidedly anti-slavery lecture to which it had been my privilege to listen so he decided that there was power in learning to read and write and he tricked the neighborhood boys into teaching him to write by challenging them to contests he would say i i bet i can do an a better than you can and then they would say oh yeah and they would paint it they would draw an a in the ground on the dirt or something and then he would say well show me another letter and they would teach him a b and a c and so forth and that's how he stole literacy gradually
0: so um what we know about frederick Douglass, so much of that comes from his own writing but do we have any kind of contemporaneous accounts of uh his existence or uh, his work before he
1: began writing himself not from before he began writing but um after he became so famous you know after the publication of his memoirs Douglas became an ex- a nation a national international figure really uh, and he um, attracted a lot of attention as a result and and reviewers would challenge him on certain details. and his fr- his family, his white family, would sometimes confirm or disconfirm comments. One of the treasured items that's kept in a historical collection is a copy of his memoirs that uh, has marginalia written in it by the white family members who knew him and that say, you know, this is correct or this is kind of untrue or whatever. And in the 1970s, an amateur scholar named Dixon Preston went and leafed through all of the records. I can't imagine the patience this man must have had to go through all these old documents and the county records and so forth to figure out what was and was not accurate. And actually, Douglas was remarkably accurate in what he remembered as a young man, Um, except, as I mentioned, the one year that he was off about his birthday. How did he earn his freedom? Well, Douglas was um, he escaped to freedom in 1838 on the Underground Railroad. He sneaked onto a train to Delaware dressed as a sailor with false uh, 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 a false passport that had been smuggled to him on the Underground Railroad. And he escaped north that way, then moved to New York and from there to New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he made a living as a as a. A cocker and a shipwright for a little while. And he was still an escaped slave, subject to capture under the fugitive slave laws of the 1790s or the 1850s. Um, he f- went to England on a speaking tour with William Lloyd Garrison and spent about a year there. And at the the end of that tour his british friends gathered together the money to buy his freedom for him which put him in kind of a tricky spot because the the garrisonian abolitionists thought it was immoral to pay for a slave's freedom because that inherently acknowledged the master's property right and so douglas if he had been asked he would have been put in a really complicated position about whether he would approve of this arrangement fortunately it was done without his knowledge and he was presented as a surprise with his freedom pay- papers. And Garrison said, you know, that's perfectly fine. He's of more value to us free than he would be subject to capture. I have no doubt that if that had not been done, that Douglas would have been captured by slave owners, the slave power in the South, if they had had the slightest opportunity. After the John Brown uprising, in which Douglas was somewhat implicated, um, Governor Henry Wise of Virginia actually put out an order to the uh, to ships to capture Douglas if at all possible, and and there's no doubt he would have been made subject to a show trial and possibly executed in the wake of the John Brown raid if he if that had happened.
0: Um, let's talk about some of the, the his contemporaries. You mentioned William Lloyd Garrison and for abolitionists of the time uh ad, ad making that uh advocacy on behalf of abolition was often uh dangerous. It was uh at the very least risked putting you out of, of good people society in a way. Uh, uh, William Lloyd Garrison owned the, the Liberator newspaper, and... Um, what was did Frederick Douglass have involvement with that paper?
1: Yeah, so uh, Douglass escaped to slavery in 1838, and only a few, only shortly thereafter, did he attend a speech by Garrison. And he was the, at that speech; he was asked to speak up and tell his own personal story. And Garrison was so impressed by Douglass that he recruited him into the uh, abolitionist movement, basically then and there, and sent him traveling around the country giving speeches. And you're absolutely right; it was a it was extremely dangerous and controversial thing to be an abolitionist at this time. We're talking about 1838 to 1845, roughly. Uh, 45 is when Douglass published his first memoir. And, you know, to be an abolitionist was regarded throughout the country as basically as a believer in treason. I mean, you... And and Garrison was largely responsible for this because Garrison believed that the Constitution of the United States was an evil document. He referred to it as a pact with the devil and a a contract with hell and burned it in public at his July 4th speeches and insisted that the nation should be completely dissolved because slavery was so evil and insisted that people shouldn't vote. And he also held controversial views on female equality and even on vegetarianism. I mean, he was kind of an extreme guy and he was so radical that even in northern states he was repeatedly threatened with death. He was almost lynched in the streets of Boston. The Philadelphia uh, meeting house that was constructed for the abolitionists to have meetings was burned to the ground the day after it, the, the ribbon-cutting ceremony. G- Garrison was an extremely controversial figure, and Douglas no less so. And his memoirs are filled with these harrowing tales of being mobbed at his speeches, being stoned. His hand was broken on one occasion, on another Occasion he barely escaped with his life after he and a black and a white friend were mobbed at a speech and beaten with sticks. And in the probably the most controversial or most shocking instance was on the stage at the Tremont Temple in Boston when Douglas was very nearly lynched by a crowd that was anti John Brown and took over a meeting where Br- Douglas was there to speak in Brown's defense. And they, the, the anti-Brown faction showed up and took over the meeting and Douglas refused to leave the stage and they came very close to killing him on the spot. And you
0: mentioned that and that there are so many stories um, that are fairly well documented about uh, Frederick Douglas and his, um, not to be uh, profane, but giving zero cares, let's say, about uh, whether or not uh, people agreed with him. Um, you said that, you know, we talked about how abolitionist views were so controversial, and yet Frederick Douglass, when he owned his own newspaper, the North Star, <laughs> changed the name to Frederick Douglass's newspaper.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, <laughs> and, you just,
0: know, I think that just illustrates just, here I am.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. It's very characteristic of Douglass. One of the things that I admire so much about Douglass is that he really saw a profound connection between political freedom and personal pride. And this was a, an, a probably the most important theme in his mind throughout his entire career, was that free people must be proud of themselves as individuals and must deserve that pride. And his the story that he would always use to illustrate this was his fight with Edward Covey, the slave breaker, to whom he was sent as a young man when he was too, you know, uppity, and he was to be beaten into submission by this small farmer named Edward Covey. And after six months of daily or weekly beatings, Douglas finally stood up for himself and fought back. And although he didn't, you know, he didn't escape from slavery on that occasion. D- nevertheless, Covey was so intimidated by Douglas fighting back that he never whipped Douglas again. And Douglas would tell the story and he would follow it with a line from the poet Byron, who would be free must themselves strike the blow. And throughout the rest of his life, Douglas emphasized that you have to, you have to earn your own freedom for your own self. Everybody deserves freedom as a natural right, but to vindicate that freedom is up to you. And people who passively surrender their freedom who accept the idea that they are subordinate to other people will never have freedom given to them by anybody else and you and should never expect it because if freedom is a gift that's given to you by somebody else that means that that they can take it away from you just as easily and so things like naming his newspaper Frederick Douglass's paper represent i think the degree of personal pride, the the satisfaction in, in his own capacity, the fact that he knew he was a good writer. He knew that, that he was an eloquent speaker. He knew that he was a worthy person with fundamental human rights and with civil rights as an American citizen, and he wasn't going to be intimidated in saying so. And that is a quality that really deserves to be celebrated. It's something that I think a lot of Douglas scholars kind of overlook. They talk about the evils of slavery and the cruelties of slavery and things like that. But Douglas also gives us an image of what it means to be a free person, and f- most fundamentally, to be a free person means to be proud as a person,
0: and, and to clearly understand that. Uh, it, as a former slave, it seems that there's there's there was almost no one at that time who could speak with his eloquence, who could who could truly understand. What that meant, what he had—he had such a clear idea of what self-ownership actually was,
1: definitely. And I mean, there were other, there were certainly plenty of other abolitionists, and there were plenty of other black abolitionists, including former slaves who became abolitionists. Henry Box Brown, for example, uh, William Wells Brown. These spokesmen and writers did, did, as Douglas did, although they were nowhere near as eloquent and outspoken as he was. But what Douglas. Did was to channel his energies into constant movement to, f- toward liberation and freedom. He, you know, um, there's an old legend that when he was an old man, a young man came to visit him and asked him what he should do with his life, and Douglas said, "Agitate, agitate, agitate." And certainly, although that story is apocryphal, certainly the essence of it is true. Another good example of this is Douglass's recruitment of black soldiers during the Civil War. He met with Lincoln in order to persuade him to enlist black soldiers in the war and Lincoln was reluctant to do so because he thought that if you bring black soldiers into the army the white soldiers are going to leave the army and and that that would be you know uh, that would harm the war effort. Douglas was never fully persuaded of this. For one thing he said, well, yeah, but if the white soldiers leave, you'll just get more black soldiers to replace them so you'll be okay. But and in, be that as it may, Douglas was very emphatic that it was important for the slaves themselves to serve in the army to see themselves serving in the army, to learn how to handle firearms, and to gain that sense of autonomy, that sense of self-dependence, and that sense of pride— as a, a veteran who had, fu- who had taken up arms to fight for his own freedom, that was something he thought was indispensable to teaching the slaves how to be free pe- people in the years after the war. Uh,
0: this is a quote uh, from uh, one of the writings of uh, Frederick Douglass. He says, uh, What shall we do with the Negro? I have had but one answer from the beginning. Do nothing with us. Your doing with us has already played the mischief with us. Do nothing with us. If the apples will not remain on the tree of their own strength, if they are worm-eaten to the core, if they are early ripe and disposed to fall, let them fall.
1: Yeah, that was actually the first thing I ever read uh, by Frederick Douglass when I was in high school. I ran across that in a magazine, and I became so interested in it that I thought, wow, I got I to gotta know who this guy was. And it was ever since then I've become— I just was fascinated with Douglas. So that was actually the very first thing I ever saw of his. Though those lines are quoted by Justice Clarence Thomas in a dissenting opinion in Grutter versus Bollinger, the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action uh what 15 years or so ago. Uh and so it, I think it shows whatever one thinks about that, it certainly shows the continuing uh um relevance of Douglas's thought today. Douglas was very reluctant to see black Americans be Uh, Either dependent or seen as dependent on the government. He thought that that would be bad for their pride as individual uh, citizens deserving of their freedom and bad because it would lead to a public image of dependency among the white population. And so he insisted that the another favorite to quote is that the true doctrine was one people, one citizenship and one law for all. So he was very reluctant to see any class of people become dependent. Now, on the other hand, he also made it clear that by leave us alone, he didn't mean you just start out the former slave by by you know undoing their chains and then leaving them be because that wouldn't be fair either and he made clear in his speeches that if you put a schoolhouse and a church on every hill in the south you would not have done justice to the former slave so he did believe in efforts to help the the former slaves Take advantage of their freedom and not just be left helpless on the side of the road. But he was also at the same time he was very sensitive to the risk involved in creating any kind of government dependency system. Uh, his most famous uh,
0: speech uh, was one that he gave. I think it was shortly after the Fourth of July, July, but it's known as "What to the Slave Is the Fourth of July?" And a, a quote from that uh, here is. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence, bequeathed by your fathers, is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine." you may rejoice i must mourn and this is a this is a speech given to presumably a mostly white crowd that just wants to oh, wants yeah. to celebrate independence day and he's saying no 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 let's be real real clear about this this is your holiday
1: that's right and this is this is my favorite douglas speech so there's a couple things to point out about it first is the incredible eloquence now douglas was uh, he, he participated in a form of rhetoric that's now extinct now, the, the high Victorian rhetoric of the mid to late 19th century that was extremely literate heavily influenced by classic Roman styles, but also biblical and occasionally a little bit of American folklore thrown in. And the, the result is this very formal, but still incredibly personal and powerful rhetorical style that just has to be read to be believed. It's really beautiful. And when you think about the fact that Douglas never had a day of real schooling in his entire life, and that he mastered this beautiful eloquent style that's really remarkable in itself now this speech you're right it was delivered on july 5th 1852 i believe um because july 4th was a sunday and he delivered it at this at a church in rochester new york and uh, probably several times after that but um it starts out in that way he starts out by saying you know you you white people have july 4th you look back at your ancestors like thomas jefferson and george washington and who do i have to look back to And throughout the entire first half of the speech, he refers to your July 4th, your Constitution, your Declaration of Independence. And then about halfway through, he switches up and he says the Constitution of the United States was not written just for white people. The Constitution says we the people. It makes no distinction between white and black. Black people are as much a part of the people of the United States as whites are, and that means they're entitled to the same constitutional protection and the same right to pursue happiness as all other people. And he goes on from there to explain why he believes the Constitution was an anti-slavery document and that, co- that slavery already violated the Constitution even before the ratification of the 13th Amendment. And there he says, my, my favorite Douglas quote, he says, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. He says that the people of the United States have allowed themselves to be imposed upon by this fraudulent notion that slavery is protected by the Constitution and that if you don't do something about it soon, you're going to have a civil war. And, you know, he was right.
0: What were uh, Douglas's uh, associations with uh, Lysander Spooner, if he had
1: any? Douglas read and was very heavily influenced by Spooner's argument that the Constitution was an anti-slavery document. Spooner was pro- really one of the very best of the scholars of the 1850s who believed that the Constitution already prohibited slavery. There were many others, Joel Tiffany, uh, Jarrett Smith, who was probably the most important in Douglas's personal life, his close friend and, and uh, mentor. But Spooner wrote this book um, in 1860, or actually, I think it was before that, and then he published a second edition, of 1860, arguing that slavery was already unconstitutional. And at the time that Douglas uh, when he first got into the anti-slavery movement, as I mentioned, it was under Garrison's tutelage, and Garrison th- thought the Constitution was pro-slavery and therefore evil. And Douglas agreed with that until about 1851. And after years of public debates with Jarrett Smith, who you know quoted Spooner to him, uh, after years of those kinds of public debates, Douglas came out and said, "No, I've changed my mind. The Constitution is an anti-slavery document," and he refers to Spooner in in by name in that July Fourth speech.
0: How is he regarded today, both by African Americans and by history? I mean, I was I was encouraged that he at least found his way onto a quarter, <laughs> onto the back of a of a quarter. Right. He's still very strongly, uh, he's still revered in in Washington D.C. and in Maryland. But how is he thought of more broadly today?
1: Well, there, I think there's no question Douglas is is other with the possible exception of Martin Luther King, Douglas is the most celebrated black american in history and, you know, certainly rightly so, but I think that the downside is that because his personal experience of escaping from slavery and becoming such a famous spokesman for freedom, that personal story is so dramatic that it tends to swamp the rest of his life, so people don't pay attention to things like his constitutional thought. Um, you know, he gave these speeches about the Dred Scott decision and about the civil rights cases, and he wrote about things like the, the Slaughterhouse cases and about the meaning of the Constitution, and he had very, a very profound and well-thought-out political philosophy, and I think that's been neglected until very recently. Now, just in the past couple of years, in the past decade or so, there have been a number of books to analyze Douglas's political thought in a serious and scholarly way, and that's really great, particularly Peter Myers and Nicholas Bukala, who have published these great books on that, uh, on that point. But, you know, Douglas kind of fell into neglect after his death until about 1950 or so. He was celebrated—he uh, uh, died in 1895, and he, his name was put on a lot of monuments and schools, and then he kind of fell out of favor, and he was regarded largely as, a, as a, uh, an orator. That, you know, the the very first biography of him published was Frederick Douglass, the Colored Orator, was the title of it. So he wasn't regarded really as an intellectual so much as an agitator. And Douglass certainly was proud of being an agitator, but he was also a a profound thinker and political. Um, thought and in philosophy, and and even he even delivered several lectures on photography. Douglas was really fascinated with photography. He's the most photographed American of the 19th century, and he delivered several lectures on the science of photography and the philosophical meaning of photography. Because he, he argued that photography allows us to project an ideal into the world and that that's the fundamental quality that distinguishes us from all other animals, that we, that we alone are able to come up with an ideal figure of what we'd like to be and then create it in the real world. Which I think is another example of his emphasis on the importance of personal pride. But anyway, that that shows how he he finally fell into neglect until about the 1950s. And then only when the civil rights movement really started getting underway in the 60s did people start again paying attention to him and republishing his writings. And now his first memoir has become a classic. Although that is also kind of ironic, Douglas was never really that proud of the first version of his memoir. It was the second version, "My Bondage and My Freedom," published in 1855. That was the one that he thought was his his great achievement, and then he revised it again as "The Life and Times" late in life. And if uh, if people read more than just your book and uh, a books
0: uh, by Frederick Douglass, his autobiographies, what it, name one other book that they ought to read to get a, a sense of this sort of critical. See, I, I think of Frederick Douglass as sort of like the last founder, in a way, definitely, because it, because he he held views that were sort of falling out of fashion.
1: Oh yes, definitely. I, I I think it's a shame that we, when we talk about founding fathers, we are always talking about the guys in the 18th century whose work was really incomplete. You know, I. Not long ago, a Thomas Jefferson scholar of my acquaintance said that, in his opinion, the true successor to Thomas Jefferson as an intellectual in America was Henry David Thoreau. Uh, and those who know of my low opinion of Thoreau will not be surprised that I strongly disagree. I think Douglas, by far, is the is the true successor as so far as intellectual uh, success and really means, any, means anything uh, to Thomas Jefferson because he took the next step of applying these principles in a far more difficult time to, a, to the, a people who had been ignored by the founding fathers in large regard. So, yes, he deserves to be regarded as a founding father of the reborn United States. What people should read other than his memoirs are his own writings, and particularly I would recommend uh, a book called uh, Frederick Douglass' Selected Speeches and Writings. It has a white cover. It's, it was edited by Yuval Taylor and Philip Foner. There are several other collections of Douglas writings out there you can get. This is by far the best one. And just read his own speeches. They're glorious. They're amazingly well written they're not hard to read people have this feeling that 19th century writing is is highfalutin and hard to read not at all douglas is very easy to read and beautiful and then if you want to read a scholarly analysis, my favorite is Peter Meyer's book, uh, Frederick Douglass and the, the Rise of American Liberalism, which is about Douglass's political philosophy throughout his whole career. Again, a very easy to read book. I I cannot stress enough how important it is to read Douglass's speeches and writings. Everybody reads his autobiographies and they leave out the real gem, which is what it was he said all, the, all that time. Tim Sandifer is author of
0: Frederick Douglass, Self Made Man, available for purchase at Cato.org and Amazon. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.